So actually the microphone is going to be less important in the beginning of this uh, Dharma talk because I'm hoping to make it a little bit interactive and ask us all to chant this uh, metta chant together. First, just to open it up. Not the best chant leader, though. So I'll. I'm sorry. Maybe I'll take this off, and we know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now let us chant the Buddha's words on loving kindness. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. And who knows the path of peace? Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. Peaceful and calm, and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to, to born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views. The pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you all. This chant in Asia is felt to offer a kind of spiritual protection. Um, 
it's ritually chanted almost as a kind of magical blessing. What I feel this is based on, it's, oh, it is also a school prayer in Sri Lanka. I think students say it before they go home from school. But the sense of the metta practice is that it protects our minds and our hearts from ill will and from the falsehood of our sense of separation. I'll go into this sense of separateness, separateness from life, separateness from one another. The way we've been teaching, we hope uh, by now to have persuaded you that to open your heart and open your mind are one thing and one process. And that kindness and compassion are kind of the heartbeat of the Buddha's intention for us, that to open up our wisdom and our seeing into reality as it truly is, that it is an act of kindness that these teachings are offered. So that's at the heart of what we're doing here, that kindness and wisdom are unified. And yet, often the practices of the Brahma Viharas and Vipassana are considered separately. And they're part of the reason I'm writing this talk, or I'm giving this talk, is because I started to look into some recent writing and scholarship from Oxford that was brought to Insight Meditation Society by John Peacock. And um, there's one British scholar who's very adamant that um, the Brahma Viharas are intended as an enlightenment practice in themselves. And that is not exactly how they've been carried in the tradition, um, that they've been given a kind of slightly secondary status. Um, and there could be reasons for that. Even as Sharon Salzberg, when she teaches metta practice, often says um, that just being kind is felt to be like a kind of a weak thing. Like if you can't be wise, then you can at least be kind of nice or something like that. <laughs> but to think of kindness and friendliness as an enlightenment practice, as leading us to real freedom and deep, profound understanding of the heart and mind. It's wonderful to hold our practice here as that, and it's wonderful to hold the mindfulness practice also as a practice of kindness. So I invite you just to see if there was any separation between those two to sort of try to bring them together. The other uh, side of metta is as an enlightened practice. It's the Buddhas, the practice of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, of people acknowledging our primordial enlightened nature. So the practice as it stands and as it's given to us is an expression of the deepest way that things are, that we are not separate from one another, and also that we can heal the separations uh, that we feel inside ourselves, separation from our experience. A few days ago, some of you or many of you were in the hall when a little delegation came in and we turned on the lights. Someone mentioned it in uh, one of the meetings. And this was a Lakota spiritual teacher who came here because he's a good friend of Bonnie's. Um, just a wonderful person of great presence, a lot like a high lama, uh, that sense of just compassion and softness radiating from this person. His name was Richard Moveskamp, and he came with two of his relatives, younger people whom he's training to also uh, participate in ceremonies and dances by which these people benefit the whole world, much as we are doing in our, or in our meditation practice, whether we know it or not, <laughs> whether we feel it or not. When we asked him to give a prayer for our retreat, it was down in the yurt where the teachers and the staff sometimes eat our meals. And just there simply he stood with, and the others stood with their hands together clasped and their heads down. And he called upon all the beings, the tribes of horses and the birds and many other classes of beings to bless us while we were here, to bless our retreat. 
And I felt, um, while I was listening to him, this kind of like figure ground reversal in which my sense of my own importance became strongly reduced. It was like going down a telescope backwards and so small that I almost disappeared. Maybe I did disappear. And I felt the sustaining power of everything around us here. It was as if the landscape and the beauty of this place was had been in a way like almost like a decoration to my mind or something like a background to my own you know struggles or thoughts and instead i started to feel um this dependency on everything that was beautiful it wasn't like a bad dependency at all it was a sort of devotion and a falling away of something i didn't need kind of a zero feeling and it was so joyous it's not just like generic birds it's these birds and these grasses and it's not only the birds and grasses it's also the earth and it's all of you and all the people who have given their time and their resources to make this place happen we're all kind of being subsidized here by the goodwill of the past people and the future people. Even this talk, I will have to say, came into being as a, you know, independency on Mark who could figure out how to print it out. (laughs) 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 And independency on the uh, sort of electronic media that I was able to finally rebuild my drive that had been lost in the cloud, um, things like that. So we don't realize or see like how we exist almost like as the result of so many dependent relationships, um, interdependent interconnections. We're part of the Big Bang, as Jack said in his talk, or the Big Flash that teacher Joanna Macy says, act your age, 80 billion years old. <laughs> It's how old the carbon in our bones is. And the astronomer who affirmed that and was kind of reviled in his his time when he discovered that uh, just died about a year ago, Jeffrey Burbage. So metta expresses the liberation of no longer seeing everything imbued by a sense of self-importance and even self-existence or permanence, that that can be liberating, that that's how things already are, that it's true and we don't see it that way. The way we train ourselves is by kind of examining and inhabiting the reality of each moment just as it shows itself to us. As Trudy said last night, not falling in love with all the stuff that isn't here The ultimate concentration is being with your being, just as it is. And when that happens, when you can kind of inhabit things um, just as they are, there's a kind of sense of discovering an ease and a freedom with the way things are. We're hearing that from all of you in your interviews, um, meetings, Jack's, um, one of Jack's recent books is The Buddha is Still Teaching. And I have that feeling when um, you start to express the truth of your experience in all the different ways that it is for you guys here. Each one kind of unique as a fingerprint, but each one having something to say about what's growing in you and your understanding and what you're going through. Some people awakened to impermanence and the flow of moods with a kind of mercy like the goddess uh, Kuan Yin at the back of the room whose watery robes express that flow. Um, Some of us are learning to love ourselves whatever mental state we happen to be in or touching on profound stillness or exploring wildly in outer and inner space or accepting gifts of emotion that arise from the stillness here. Letting our minds grow quiet and coming close to our experience. With sincerity. 
So the word metta means uh, to soften, actually mid. There's a mid, means soften or moisten, um, and to be friendly. And that sense of softening into an experience is kind of a primary meditation instruction that we could have to be friendly with any experience. There's also the development of a metta practice, kind of the generation of friendly wishes that we've all been doing um, at 4.30 and Spani did. I was sorry, it was my whole talk had just turned blue on the screen when Bonnie was talking about the neutral person today, so I missed it. I'm sorry. I wanted to come. And this kind of formal metta practice that brings us closer to ourselves and to others is one of the most profoundly psychologically transforming practices anyone can do. I know that for myself. I remember um, when the, the first time the sense of metta kind of spontaneously arose after all the grinding that I had been doing, it was just feeling my hand on my own belly. I woke up in the morning in my bed and felt that the hand on my belly was actually a caress, that the metta was arising between my hand and belly without my having kind of willed it into being. Such a gift. It was like an opening of a possibility, this spontaneous kind of blessing and joy that um, kind of told me that what I was doing here was really worth it and made me willing and able to kind of re-enter the sort of production mode or whatever it was I was doing. So after the native um, group came into uh, this hall, then we walked down the hill together and there was a young guy that I was uh, conversing with, a very young and shy, very charming, shy person who's growing up in Oakland and with the dignity of his warriorship in his youth, he asked us um, if there was a sweat lodge here. And I said, well, not exactly. There, Well, there is one, but we don't use it all the time. And then he started talking about how he was going to enter the sweat lodge and let go of all the stuff, the kind of negative stuff inside himself and purify his mind and his body and his being to offer himself then into the ceremony. And I said, well, that's kind of what we do. <laughs> in our meditation hall, too. It's a kind of purification process that we're going through. Later on, I was talking with Bonnie about all of this, and she said very simply, which is one of the axioms of Buddhist teaching, is that um, our practice consists of a purification aspect and a sort of building up aspect. And the purification you could think of as being the vipassana, or the clear seeing, kind of seeing through not being reborn into thought after thought or seeing how the mind works and how we get reborn into thought after thought. And in seeing how we get reborn, there's a piece of us that knows and is released from the fixity or fixation, the slavery of um, being always the person that your thought is telling you that it is. And the building side or the kind of growing side is offering that kindness again and again into the moment So these are moments of kind of tiny liberations and tiny moments of softness. We begin to know that sense of release any time that we kind of come into the practice with that sense of clarity or trust, um, those little openings. When we can have kindness toward this one who really thinks a lot or equanimity toward the arising of thoughts, or metta toward the thoughts themselves. And as that opening happens, and it happens you know, gradually and it's not easy, we start to become more and more aware of how truly blessed we are. There are times when, in the practice, when every experience seems to arise as a blessing in the field of our knowing almost no matter what kind of experience it is, even if it's not the one that we would prefer, we can still feel blessed to be alive. So how is it that awareness is not love? I would like to know. Only when we're in a state of delusion, I think, which is where we're often living, but still in truth and basically wisdom and love are one thing, almost like the lights by which Ultimate reality shines into this relative world. Often compared uh, wisdom and kindness to the two wings of a bird, 
without which the bird can't fly. And I always think, like to think like with my way of thinking, it's like, and what's the body of the bird? Those are the wings. What's the body? <laughs> I guess it's me. <laughs> it's the heart or something like that. So to just trace through the suttas a little bit of how the, the Buddha actually says and very, states very clearly that loving-kindness is an enlightenment practice. In the Dhammapada, verse 368, he says, the one who lives practicing friendliness and has faith in the teachings will realize Nibbana, the tranquil, the unconditioned, the blissful release. And I think here it means practicing friendliness um, there are uh, very creative ways of doing it, even when we practice it in a structured way. We always say the practice is creative, that you have to do it the way it works for you. And in general, um, practicing friendliness, when I think about the context of this statement, it's practicing friendliness in all ways, in physical ways and mental ways. Like here we're practicing very intensive mental cultivation but it's also practicing it in the emotions and in the way we brush our teeth, in the way we feed ourselves, and in the way we look at other people. Maybe even when you see the bodies of other people, can you let the sight of that person kind of into your experience in a way of metta, of recognizing, even as we're all in our own storm. Everyone here is kind of in our own little storm. The path to letting go seems to need to happen by way of receiving and allowing. Um, you can't, if you let go too soon, it doesn't really work out. Like you have to approach um, your experience or approach things before you can let them go. I like the uh, term of letting be a little bit more. I never thought my parents would live this long. No one in our family has ever made it to 90. After my father's first cancer diagnosis 18 years ago, I began treating each holiday as if it were our last together. One year when he and my mother called to sing me happy birthday, I asked them to sing it again so that I could record it for future birthdays without parents, though I couldn't tell them that. I frequently reminded myself that I needed to start letting them go. As the years passed and each new health crisis was resolved, it began to seem absurd to constantly be awaiting my parents' deaths. Time buffed away the rough edges of our relationship, and I learned that I truly enjoy their company. When I visit now, they prop their feet up on twin recliners, and I'll stretch out on the couch. We'll talk about bank bailouts, or the best way to cut a mango, or why we left New York for Michigan in 1957. What's wrong with their lawn? or gay marriage, or even, yes, their funeral plans. Sometimes when I'm by myself, I cry, knowing what's ahead. But letting them go? First, I had to let them in. So it's kind of this being an experience without insisting that it become otherwise so important not needing to be pleased by things. As Sylvia Burstein has said, to be content with what I've got and still feel that life is good and people are good. One time at uh, Tufts University, I went to a you know, very important academic conference on how a chair is an expression of loving kindness. They brought this speaker, like this important intellectual, and that was her talk. Chairs express loving kindness because they're willing to bear our weight. <laughs> so look at all these cushions here that are keeping our you know, vulnerable bodies from the floor and keeping the bones from pressing through our flesh. <laughs> so metta is actually spoken of in the text specifically as uh, within the forms of mindfulness. Um, Does that rearrange our head a little bit? Like I've been practicing a long time and I've just started to think of it that way. Just softening, just being friendly. Going back to that meaning of loving kindness. In the Abhidhamma it says, 
that metta or kindness or friendliness is a component of all wholesome states of mind. It may not be the obvious kind of wonderful, kind of juicy, gooey, adoring, thrilling metta that we like to feel, that we crave so much when we're practicing that practice, but it's always there for us when our mind is in balance. So this might mean that metta is actually something not a, uh, not a state, not something we can cling to. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. But first I want to talk about how it's part of our nature. And in that, again, in keeping with the vision of this universe as interconnection, I want to say that uh, we human beings, we have a great potential for goodness and a great potential for being harmful with our minds. But also that we're not so special. I was reading, I love reading scientific things and things about animals. I love animals. And I read a story of a, uh, of a young female bat who was pregnant and trying to give birth, and she went and hung on a branch upside down the wrong way with her vagina pointing up, the way bats do when they sleep. And she's kind of trying to give birth like that, and it didn't work out. So this older female bat came over and actually showed her that she's got to hang the other way. <laughs> And that's going to help them. I mean, I imagine the bat was probably about this big, right? And then she kind of did some licking and some massaging and stuff and helped the baby come out. And then she helped this tiny baby find the mother's breast afterwards. Like she was like a guide, like a midwife. Um, Did you know bats could be midwives? Or there's also the incredible and often kind of heartbreaking loyalty of animals like dogs, you know, the incredible love that they can show. They have the same emotional wiring or limbic system as human beings, which is partly why we feel like such a connection. Those of us who are the dog people love that. Those who love cats love the things about cats that I haven't studied very much. <laughs> Trudy spoke last night about the insouciance of the armadillo, which is great. <laughs> we could be proud that we have the same emotions as a dog, I think. It's um, a good thing. So recently I went to uh, visit my niece, who's seven years old, and she was showing me her rock collection from a trip all these beautiful rocks that she'd gathered on the beach. And after showing them to me, she immediately said, well, you have to have this one and this one and this one. And she took the best ones. And it was just so immediate, like, And I was like, wow, there's no clinging there. It was just spontaneous. There was absolutely immediate giving in her. And I thought, this is incredible. I, I talked to my sister about it, and she said, yeah, like, Alma goes to school, and sometimes she gives away her clothes. It's kind of a problem. <laughs> Her best new outfit she gives away. And I didn't feel like she was doing it to curry favor or anything like that. It wasn't the energy there. Then we started to eat strawberries together, or the strawberries came out of the fridge, and the most selfish little person appeared. I get the big strawberry, it's mine! And it was a really ugly face. And the ones that she was willing to offer for me were kind of the old little withered ones from yesterday. <laughs> you can have these. <laughs> and I thought, look, there it is, you know. It's total generosity and total selfishness. Kind of unvarnished uh, and raw. And when I was there, I think, you know, I thought, no shaming, no persuasion, um, This is how I am too, and haven't I had my own struggles with feeling like it's all right to sometimes want the big strawberry for me? You know, like it was being kind of the adult presence there to say like, this is where she is, this is what she needs to do. This is her loving herself in this moment. This is her caring for herself in this moment. And I felt my heart kind of, first it was contracting looking at that kind of slightly scary aspect of my dear niece. (laughs) And then a sense of like opening and like, I can be here for her with this. I can let her have that. I can let her have not only the strawberry, but the way she feels right now. 
So our own ugly moments, as we have them here, my walking path, my way of doing this right, uh, I didn't ask a long, tedious question, even though I wondered about certain things. (laughs) My silence. um, I remember on one long retreat, I left a note pinned in the shower. And the note was about the size of the palm of this hand. And it was kind of like microfilm. (laughs) Because I had the room next to the shower and people were showering when they were not supposed to. So I posted this note. And then I went in my room because I was sitting in my room and I tried to sit and I felt like a piece of my skin was on the wall in the bathroom. (laughs) I had to go take it down and just deal with and let be the sound of the shower after that. So when the Buddha encouraged us, and as it is in this chant, to love all beings as a mother loves her child, her only child, excluding none, that means us. That means loving ourselves that way. It begins with us. And if we leave ourselves out of this metta practice, there are problems. My sister uh, in San Francisco is a doctor, and she's written a book on uh, medical care for vulnerable and underserved populations, which to read it is kind of just an exercise in compassion and how to think about the things that a homeless person goes through. So if a homeless person comes into your office, remember to ask them about this and this and this. Remember to uh, clean their feet, for example, things like that. But the last chapter is about the vulnerable and underserved population of physicians the last people that they tend to think about. They have a higher suicide rate and all kinds of things than the normal population. So the recommendations in that last chapter are learn to love yourself, the biggest emotional task of all. It said, attend to your own well-being. Learn to say, I don't know. Connect with others. They might have been reading the suttas, I think, when they composed that text. But they say, you know, people hold themselves to a higher standard in that profession. And maybe we do too, because we're here practicing. We don't want to see ourselves go through, like, raw emotion or having your mind totally screaming. um, Because, after all, we've been here for a while, and it shouldn't really be this way. So it's the same thing. Like, I like to tell people to lower their standards. (laughs) lower the bar until you can actually get over it. Even put it on the floor if you have to. (laughs) Yet the Buddha also pointed out how detrimental the selfish side of us can be. Selfishness is not really the same as uh, caring for oneself. Can we really love ourselves with a non-kind of selfish love? I would just sort of like to say that that force of selfishness is the force maybe of preference or of, that includes a judgment about uh, who we are and what we are at any given time. It's also being able to extend metta to another that begins to give the power for jhana practice the, to the benefactor and the various other beings. That it sort of takes, it might take a little bit more energy also even just to be able to in our imagined way, empathize or understand the presence of another being. David Foster Wallace's graduation address uh, to some class. A huge percentage of the stuff that I tend to be automatically certain of is, it turns out, totally wrong and deluded. Here's one example of the utter wrongness of something I tend to be automatically sure of. Everything in my own immediate experience supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe, the realist, most vivid, and important person in existence. We rarely talk about this sort of natural, basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive, but it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. Think about it. There's no experience you've had that you were not at the absolute center of. The world as you experience it is in front of you or behind you, to the left or right, or on your TV, your monitor, whatever. Other people's thoughts and feelings have to be communicated to you somehow, but yours are so immediate, so urgent, so real. Then he goes on and talks about um, how that's kind of almost cultivated. It's your 
uh, when you're, that's your natural default setting, you can be called well-adjusted. But most days, if you're aware enough to give yourself a choice, you can choose to look differently at the fat, dead-eyed, over-made-up lady who just screamed at her little child in the checkout line. Maybe she's not usually like this. Maybe she's been up for three straight nights holding the hand of her husband who's dying of bone cancer. Or maybe this very lady is the low-wage clerk at the motor vehicle department who just yesterday helped your spouse resolve a nightmarish red tape problem through some small act of bureaucratic kindness. Of course, none of this is likely, but it's not impossible. (laughs) He goes on to say that if you've really learned how to think and how to pay attention, um, that you get to choose how you respond. You get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what you worship. This kind of freedom has much to recommend it, he says. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort and being able truly to care about other people and sacrifice for them over and over in myriad petty, little unsexy ways every day. So here, let's say, we're sacrificing maybe not for others directly, but in a way we're putting ourselves on the altar and being able to sacrifice our old ways of being, even sacrifice uh, clinging to a particular mind state, sacrifice self-judging, sacrifice judging others and being willing not to be bound in those repeated conceptions of ourselves. Simone Weil said, it is only necessary to know that love is a direction and not a state of the soul If one is unaware of this, then one falls into despair at the first onslaught of affliction. So love is a direction and not a state of the soul. If one is unaware of this, then one falls into despair at the first onslaught of affliction. So again and again, we bring to the moment our willingness to be friendly, our willingness to be mindful, and we take what comes unconditionally kind of living from the Buddha's heart and mind unconditionally to whether we accept the visit of the grandchild or the loneliness that we have when the grandchild doesn't visit. We can still prefer one over the other, but we're able to be with either one. Sometimes we're asked to go with something that's painful, with a kind of empathy, with being able to let it be a little difficult or a lot difficult um, before we try to kind of jerk ourselves into another condition. One more little story here about a little girl who was uh, disqualified at her swim meet. After a few moments of silence, Mimi kissed Dana's head and said, I know how hard you work at this, honey. It's sad to get disqualified. At that point, Dana began to cry. Mimi continued to sit there with her arm around Dana for several minutes without saying anything. Eventually, Dana looked up at Mimi, wiped her tears, and said, Thanks, Mimi. And I thought every leader, every manager, every team member, every person should see this. We had tried to make her feel better by helping her to see the advantage of her failure or putting the defeat in context or teaching her to draw a lesson from it, motivating her to work harder and get better so it wouldn't happen again. But she didn't need any of that. She already knew it. And if she didn't, she'd figure it out on her own. She needed to feel that she wasn't alone, that we loved her and her failure didn't change that. She needed to know we understood how she was feeling and we had confidence that she would figure it out. So I want to talk a little bit about this um, sutra that we have here, the Buddha's words on loving-kindness. And I want to, um, since I've been speaking what I consider to be extremely slowly on um, special request, (laughs) I have uh, reached something like the midpoint of the pages that I wrote here. I want to bring our attention to this uh, sheet here, this metta uh, practice as a beginning of the end of this 
a small discourse. A little bit with the agenda of uh, persuading everyone and the scholars in the audience that uh, the metta practice is a full and complete enlightenment path. Just contained in this, which is one of the sutras, and it's said, I just love the story of this, and many of you have heard it, that uh, there were some monks and nuns who were practicing in a grove. They were sent to practice in a part of the forest where they were hearing a lot of weird noises and they were being bothered by the tree spirits and they felt very unwelcome to be there. So they came to the Buddha and said, we would like to be sent to another grove. Can we like, not be in the place that you asked us to go? And he said, well, what's the problem? And they said, well, these tree spirits are not welcoming to us. They're howling and screaming and they're terrifying us at night. And that's when the Buddha said, well, um, maybe you should practice loving kindness. And uh, he gave this discourse here. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. So you can see already that um, there's an assertion of something that we already know, even right in the beginning of this. And the first part of this is actually the sila, or right conduct portion of the Buddha's teaching. So you can see, let them be able and upright, straightforward, which can be a character trait and also a mindfulness trait, and gentle in speech, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties, which we're all uh, practicing here. Just to say that um, when we do go back to our lives, the idea of leaving a little space uh, in our lives is important. Uh, We may not always be able to be on vacation like this, but um, to make time and space for practice and also not to see our life as a burden, not to see what we must do as sort of a chore or a problem or a curse, Um, recognizing the nature of life that we all must take care of ourselves. So it goes on here. Uh, Let them not do the summing up by saying, let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. That's a practice. I think I see somebody taking a bug out. That's so great. That's so great. (laughs) Gotta love us. (laughs) (laughs) So then the second part where it starts here, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. That's the beginning of the concentration practice or the mental practice of loving kindness, the generating these friendly wishes, as we said. May all beings be at ease is kind of... um, I know when I was doing the metta jhana practice, it was repeating traditional phrases, but it was also a kind of a task of inquiry about what I could say that I really meant. I kept it in the phrase of the simple traditional, in the frame of the simple and traditional phrases, but I kept saying, now what, what would be happy in mind? What would be healthy in mind? What would be at ease? And I think when I came down to it, it really was liberation every time. Um, That may be different for each of you, but what can you really wish in a world where we know there's uncertainty? Um, Wouldn't we wish that each person could face their life and find the resources uh, just to be friendly with themselves through whatever they have to go through? This moment-to-moment liberation actually being the only one that there is. Like, there's no liberation outside this moment, right? Since there's nothing going on outside this moment. Um, This is really the time. Let none deceive another. um, When it goes on through here, let the seen and the unseen, near and far away, born and to be born. If we want to, we can think of this as the moments of our life, maybe more than even just beings, you know, the thoughts that we might have or the instances or the meals or the times of our life. May all beings be at ease, and may we be at ease in all moments. Not to be deceptive or despising any being in any state, including ourselves. So it goes on, saying, radiating kindness over the entire world, upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded. So I think that's also to recognize our connection in this very cosmos that we're living in, that if we look at the sky at night and the space beyond it and 
see the stars there, you might try this exercise. Is there anything that's separating you from those stars? Do we know that we actually need their light for life to exist in this world? Annie Dillard said, you don't have to go outside in the dark. The stars don't care. But if you want to see them, you do have to go outside in the dark. Going on down, freed from hatred and ill will, this begins to be the result or the wisdom that arises from the loving-kindness practice. These curious words here, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, now this is means in all postures, all moments of our life to be practicing this friendliness and this connection. Free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. Now I would like to just say that um, the Buddha may be speaking here of uh, the Nibbanic abiding, the uh, recognizing our freedom in this moment uh, to approach it with kindness. By not holding to fixed views, meaning the view of oneself, another, or this is right or this is wrong, or just that horrible, uh, rackety prison of our thinking um, that makes something ours and not someone else's. The pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. just want to offer a little bit of a retranslation of that last line, is not born again into this world, I'd just like to say is not born again into suffering. That's a better translation. translation. The Buddha's always talking about um, kind of coming to the end of existence. And what I believe that he means, at least speaking from my experience and from the experience of others, we've discussed this with quite a bit, it is um, not born into this world of self-conception, of, you know, that we have a self that can be judged, that all this kind of apparatus where uh, our story starts to take over and um, leaves room for judgment, for guilt, and for adding shame onto what we experience. To sort of relax down into the purity of our being, um, our being that's manifesting moment to moment, just as it is, finding the freedom in ourselves to say, this is how it is just now. Starting to see ourselves then much more ephemerally, like much more in process moment to moment, a little bit um, fleeting, like the cobweb that Marie spoke of the other day so ephemeral and so beautiful, so present for us, uh, holding us in this world when we're not caught like a fly in our own thinking mind. So our thinking uh, mind, when we get born into those identities and stuff, is actually part of the great ephemeral panorama of life. Um, But what happens is that somehow when we get all kind of up in there, we're not really seeing it that way. So in this kind of ultimate, uh, or I would say most recent meditation instruction, there's part of the kindness of the Buddha also to begin to see our thoughts as a process. Um, There's a way that we kind of generate thoughts and language and it seems to create a thingness. It's like I'm talking here in what's ultimately a symbolic way to try to pass some understanding over to you. And somehow in the process of coming together in thoughts, it gets a little clunky. It gets kind of thingified. And that's kind of the way that we um, can get into trouble is to sort of fixate and have a view It's like we're under some kind of a magic spell, believing all these versions of reality that our kind of untamed mind produces that we consume. And this ordinary way that our mind works and presents reality to us, the way David Foster Wallace was talking about, makes us feel uh, somehow that we're lacking, that there's a lack in our experience. So I'll leave you with... um, sort of the sweat lodge words of Nisargadat um, saying, empty yourself completely. 
Give up all ideas about yourself and simply be. Stop making so much use of your mind. See what happens. Do this one thing thoroughly. That is all. Actually, I think rather than completely ending there, I might like to say the, the Sue prayer called uh, All My Relations, which I wish... Um, what's it called? Mitakuye Oyasin? Is that how you say it? Mitakuye Oyasin. Anyway, I can't say it right. Um, so as we can share the blessing. Aho Mitakuye Oyasin. All My Relations. Actually, that's almost enough for the whole prayer right there. So can we feel that we're all like relations here in this room? Not just with these people, but with all. I honor you in the circle of life with me today. I'm grateful for this opportunity to acknowledge you in this prayer. To the creator for the ultimate gift of life, I thank you. To the mineral nation that has built and maintained my bones, and all foundations of life experience. I thank you. To the plant nation that sustains my organs and body and gives me healing herbs for sickness. I thank you. To the animal nation that feeds me from your own flesh and offers your loyal companionship in this walk of life. I thank you. To the human nation that shares my path as a soul upon the sacred wheel of earthly life. I thank you. To the spirit nation that guides me invisibly through the ups and downs of life and for carrying the torch of light through the ages, I thank you. To the four winds of change and growth, I thank you. You are all my relations, my relatives, without whom I would not live. We are in the circle of life together, coexisting, codependent, co-creating our destiny, one not more important than the other, one nation evolving from the other, and yet each dependent upon the one above and the one below, all of us a part of the great mystery. Thank you for this life and for your gracious attention. Thank you. Be quiet together a little. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.